This is Soundmaking, a podcast made by Hogan Stenner and myself, Matthew Shlomovitz. Each episode of Soundmaking features a composer or performer discussing the how and why of music they've created. Earthy Records is a brand new label run by the San Francisco-based Cherry Music duo The Living Earth Show. So far, they have released two albums, and in this episode, you'll hear composer Samuel Adams talking about his album Lyra, which was composed between 2018 and 2021. We hear Travis Andrews on guitars, Andrew Meyerson on percussion, and Samuel himself on contrabass, piano, and electronics. This wonderful album may be purchased on the link provided in the information section. I'm Andy Meyerson. I am the percussionist and co-founder of The Living Earth Show. And take two, I am Travis Andrews. I'm the guitarist and executive director and co-founder of The Living Earth Show. Hey, my name is Sam Adams. I'm a composer currently living in San Francisco, California. I have been working on this project with Andy and Travis since 2018. Today, we're going to talk about our album with Samuel Adams called Lyra, which is one of two albums we've released this year on our Earthy Records label. So we've been a duo since 2010, but so many of our projects now are, um, they become trios with the composer performing alongside us. So both Danny and Sam performed on their albums. And like, basically this year, we're starting a record, an in-house record label which is going to do quarterly releases. Um, so those are the first two. And then we have two others this year for next year, um, et cetera. Um, and I think with one exception for the next three years, all of the ones will have the composer performing with us, whether that's Ellen Fullman or Sarah Hennies or um, Shandi Basu. All, all of these are effectively trios, at least. Sam and I have known each other um, since sophomore year of college, we were music majors together. Um, he is as, as old a friend as one could, one could want, one could ask for. And we just like, yeah, are extremely close and kind of grew up together in a ton of, in a ton of very important ways. Um, his first piece that he wrote for us was the first piece he composed as a composer out of grad school. And the first piece we commissioned as an ensemble. That was Tension Studies. Um, there's two of them. So one and two. Um, uh, I think he wrote in 2010 and tw- we premiered in 2011. It was funny because for the first like five, six years of our ensemble, as we commissioned other pieces, every piece that we got had some element of tension studies in them. 
Like it became this foundation of not just our rep of like our performance practice, but like the repertoire that came after. I'm also the um, music director of a of a company here in the Bay of a dance company called Post Ballet, um, which is in a lot of ways a a sibling arts organization to us. Um, we started around the same times. They do in in dance what we do in music, and they present a season of productions that are that are multidisciplinary and have and really just cohesive and immersive and. We, it felt like we were kind of operating on parallel tracks. So in 2016, we worked together to do a, our, our first big collaboration called Doobie. Um, and that was just an evening length co-production. And it was the biggest thing any of us had ever done. It was really fun. Um, very, very difficult, but very fun. And then when that was done, myself and Robert De- Robin Deckers, who is the founder and director of Post Ballet, we started talking about what we wanted to do next. Like, what, we, what could we do that was, felt like we could follow up a very large production. And what we wanted to do was, we had, we had all worked with Sam and all of us sort of felt that it was, it felt like it would make sense for the three of us, so the Living Earth Show, Post Ballet and Sam, to do the thing that would be on a much larger scale than we'd ever attempted before. That became Lyra, which is the longest piece that Sam has written. Um, the biggest, I think it took the longest amount of time in terms of scale, in terms of scope, in terms of everything, I guess, except instrumentation. It's this enormous piece that's almost entirely in unison that really did feel like the culmination of just a decade of building a artistic vocabulary together. So the piece has a, a certain formal arc that responds directly to Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. Um, and the work doesn't have any direct quotations. There's no Monteverdi that was lifted and placed in the context of, of my piece. However, I think that there is a, a kind of emotional formal arc that is maintained and that has a lot of kind of core resonances. Um, and beyond that, there are, there are passages, I think that, that function similarly to the, to the, the, the ways in which the story of Orpheus and Eurydice are articulated in the early 17th century <laughs> work by, by Monteverdi. Um, there are passages that, um, you know, reflect certain moments in the Monteverdi, specifically a long guitar solo called Canopy, which Travis performs alone, um, that I think has a, a similar emotional quality to one of the most famous arias in the Monteverdi, Posente Spirito. Um, and you can hear in this very famous passage in Monteverdi, there's a kind of implication of space. You hear the long, melismatic, florid vocal lines responded to by a, a series of, of echoes in the instrumental music. And in fact, it's actually this moment in the Monteverdi that really excited the idea of creating a piece that 
explores concepts of resonance and concepts of space and um, concepts of how we respond emotionally to certain perceptions of space. The harmonic material of the piece fundamentally is tonal. Um, I mean, you'll hear if you listen to the the piece in its entirety that there are um, there are these kind of long formal arcs that rely on the same kind of um, you know tonal movement that you might find in a, you know in a piece from the 17th century. But I think what what makes the piece to me at least as the, as the composer of it harmonically interesting is is that there are two tuning systems that are effectively running in tandem throughout the entire work um, those being um, you know equal temperament so you know the kind of tuning system that you would hear on a piano or in this case a vibraphone which is um, you know very much omnipresent throughout the piece and every chord every melody every harmonic fragment has a kind of just intoned equivalent, which is manifest through sine waves um, that are reamplified in, in snare drums. And what you get is this kind of strange world where the the intense polarized feeling of uh, of uh, you know a certain chord in one temperament is in a way kind of counterbalanced by its equivalent in another. So at the very beginning of the piece, for example, you'll hear a phrase which is kind of, you know, D9 chord, then to a C-sharp suspension, and then resolving down to a kind of A6 chord. Um, and so there's certainly a kind of, uh, you know, there's a tonal motion implicit, even in those three chords. But when you hear the, the just intonation equivalent placed on top of each of these chords, um, the, the, the sensation of the tonal movement changes quite a bit. It creates a, a different kind of tension that um, I think is really interesting to explore and has, you know, timbral, uh, you know, r results. When, you, when you're hearing, um, you know, an E-sharp in two temperaments, you're going to get a, all kinds of really beautiful wobbles and LFOs that are, that are created from, you know, two, two pitches that are slightly out of tune with one another. And this is something that's, it's in every single note of this piece. Um, the electronic setup of the piece, there's a, a lot of, you know, very kind of lo-fi reamping of very basic digital elements, sine waves, white noise, pink noise, and different, you know, colorations of noise um, using different kinds of filters that are then pumped through transducers that excite snare drums. And so what's fun about working 
with transducer speakers and snare drums is you get the, you know, almost sanitized sound of a sine wave, but realized in a way that it's actually quite complex and, and, and different with, you know, every performance. It's different with the size of the drum. It could be different depending on the size of the room or how hot the room is. Um, and for me, it, this is what gives the electronic component of the piece its character and its kind of organic quality. There are two solos in this piece. Uh, one movement, which is for solo guitar, is called Canopy. Um, and then there's a solo percussion movement called Field. Um, and there's something important to be said about this movement. Um, a lot of this piece was built, um, or at least I should say sketched in the studio with dancers present um, during two very focused workshop um, sessions with with post ballet in San Francisco. Um, so the first movement, wedding, uh, as well as a movement called Hades and Persephone, um, those were made quite literally with the dancers in the room. Um, and then field is one of the movements that was made in my studio. Um, the music was created before um, the dance was choreographed. Um, and yeah, this is a movement that was so fun and so interesting to create. And the work is very much pattern based um, for a number of reasons. I mean, there's, there's, I think a, there's a, a, a natural pattern based element to the entire 60 minute score. Um, but specifically with this piece, um, the, the patterning of the, the musical materials served both as a, a way to organize the music formally, um, but it also served as a, as a mnemonic device for Andy. Um, Andy and Travis are known for a number of things, but one really important aspect to their music making is that they, they play everything from memory. Um, and in a movement like Field, which has so much repetition, um, it, 
it's nice as a as a performer to have some kind of logical way to move through the material um and i think it's it's very palpable when you when you listen to this movement um how the patterns kind of expand and contract to certain thresholds before restarting there's also formal contraction and expansion happening and you'll hear at the very end of the movement that um, the piece kind of ends up swallowing itself in a way One thing that was also fascinating about this project for us is like we've spent a lot of our career running from and like being just like kind of mortified by the classical tradition. Like Western classical music is something that like we were really embarrassed of our training in a lot of ways, um, just because like the field in so many ways did things that, you know, made the world worse um, and like kept people out on purpose and we had that musical vocabulary and that artistic training and were like the things that we commissioned and especially as we got away from commissioning pieces and started building productions that it synthesized a lot of different disciplines and media like it was something that the, the classical tradition specifically was something that we almost had very little use for 
Um, and as we kind of matured and like became more, more, more like developed in what we were doing, one thing that felt really important with Sam and with Post Ballet as we uh, uh, began to imagine what a, a, pr a production and a statement would be, we asked ourselves what it would mean to very directly confront the classical tradition. And what does it mean to build something within that and like speak to it and confront it and interrogate it and like work within it very directly. So in so many ways, Lyra is a very logical continuation of centuries of classical tradition. Like from Monteverde on, you can trace how this piece came into being. So on Canopy, uh, the guitar solo, we did everything on a on a cheap steel string acoustic guitar in my home. Throughout the piece, we were using um, contact microphones to like excite drums and and uh, well, mostly drums, um, just to get resonances through another acoustic membrane. And oftentimes, like on the record, you hear these resonances as if you're hearing it from the perspective of a drum. So you get to hear the music or the material of the piece like amplified through a drum. We did the same process through the exact same guitar that I tracked the piece on. So there's um, a lot of overlapping sine waves and other material from the piece that we use the contact microphone on the surface of the same guitar that I tracked the guitar part proper on, uh, remiked and amplified. And so it's just this, the whole piece is this one cheap <laughs> instrument excited in a variety of ways. This is the first 
album that I've mixed uh, from start to finish or done every track on um, as a complete work. Another thing that was like notable for me during the process was right in the middle of tracking, uh, my sister died or my only sibling, my sister died in the middle of it. So I had to kind of take a break from it and reschedule a bunch of the tracking and then come back and do it again. And I was also producing the sessions and it just totally, it's like a kick in the solar plexus. So I had to kind of pick up the pieces and start working on the project again. And as you'd expect, I was working through like a lot of the big questions like life and death, which is also, you know, built into the, into the Orpheus myth. You know, I worked out a lot of that personal process through like kind of the mixing and additional tracking of the record. Um, I got a chance to, you know, create some of the sound design for some of the interludes. So I was always trying to uh, sneak in voicemails from my sister, you know, like, you know, stuff like that. Like I was, I was really trying to make it personal. You know, when you're a, when you're a musician that plays classical music, you take your role as interpreter very seriously. And sometimes I think that can be misinterpreted as um, pleasing the artist's intention. Um, but I really wanted to bring myself to the project as like a true collaborator um, and then do things compos compositionally where appropriate and, and when I could and just kind of do something with some of the emotional discomfort um, that I was experiencing at the time. Uh, I remember going in to track uh, a gymnopédie, uh, but I remember going in there and then I really, really wanted, um, I really, really wanted to track that like at a particular time uh, when I was feeling rotten because I just uh, wanted like every note to have something to do with my personal experience or something. And, uh, you know, that one always stuck with me. That was my favorite track on the on the record. <laughs> 